Titus 1. We'll finally finish up chapter 1, Titus 1. And uh, oh, it's been helpful to you. I, I sure enjoy uh, these ones, but especially these pastoral epistles, not just because I'm a pastor, but it gives great insight into really how a church should operate, things we should emphasize. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of the things, there's a great movement today, and uh, it's kind of in what I grew up in. And when I started reading my Bible, I realized this is wrong, but this idea of minimizing doctrine or minimizing theology. And uh, doctrine is a divisive idea, or uh, you know, even have you even heard it said, doctrine's a bad word around here, you know, in certain circles. And uh, but when I look at the pastoral epistles, you see that phrase, that word used so many times: doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Why? Because uh, you know, doctrine simply is is teaching, or it's a body of teaching. And uh, and uh, what, what's really at stake here? Well, without doctrine, we don't have anything. It's uh, it's a social club, it's a gathering, and it really is truly doctrine is the glue that holds us together. We fellowship around. Uh, what we believe and what we believe to be true. Theology matters. And, uh, and I think uh, all Christians, um, sometimes we use this term, the theologians. You know, the theologians say, you know, the reality is every one of us should be theologians. We are students of theology. And um, from the pastor to the newest saved person, uh, think about how, how does someone get saved? They're introduced to the basics of theology, <laughs> the doctrine of salvation, and, uh, and receive it from the heart. But in uh, Titus 1, we're going to pick up in verse number 15. We'll read the last two verses here. And, uh, and I want to challenge us. We've read this verse many times, I'm sure. But I want you to try to remember, uh, we'll, we'll review just a little bit, but, but wrap your mind around the context as we're reading this, because that's really important. Uh, it says, Unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Those are some very strong words. Let's uh, dive into this as we unpack this. Well, let's ask God to help us this evening. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight as we've opened up your word. We've already read uh, these passages. And, and Lord, I just pray to you to direct our own hearts and our thoughts as we consider these are words describing teachers. And these are words describing those that have usurped authority in your churches back in the, the first century. And really, the, the temptation for anyone to not only to follow false teaching, but to even slip into being a false teacher. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to really understand the heart and the mind uh, in this passage. And uh, we'll thank you for what you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember uh, here, as we've, we've been unpacking, the reason and the purpose for this letter and uh, is kind of unpacking what Titus's ministry would be. Paul says, uh, you know, for this cause, uh, verse number five, for this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I've appointed thee. Now, to fix the problems, there's two things. He wants to set some things in order or to correct some things that were wanting or lacking and then to set, uh, to ordain some pastors or some spiritual leaders to oversee to help keep, keep the order. So we're going to set in order some things, but then we're going to keep the order. And, uh, and then he challenges them. He gives some qualifications of, uh, of these pastoral leaders, the elders, the bishops, the pastors. And then he gives what they're to be doing. And it's amazing what it says to, for them to do. Look at, uh, look at verse number... Um, um, verse number 11, whose mouths must be stopped. Talking about the people that are going in to confront. Their mouths must be stopped. Um, let's see, he goes on, uh, there's, there's one phrase I'm trying to find here. Uh, verse number 10, talking about these people. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, uh, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And uh, look at verse 13. This witness is true, uh, speaking of the the... the 
the uh, poet, what he had written about how Cretans are. He says, that's true of these leaders. And then he says, uh, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. So he says they must, their mouths must be stopped and they must be rebuked. Now, let me ask you, is that in our day and age, in our day of tolerance, in our day of soft-speaking preachers, you know, they got that, that calm tone that, you know, trying to be sensitive and, and concerning your feelings. Now, I'm not saying I should get up and be mean and those kinds of things, but, but if you just notice the tone of many modern preachers, you know, just, we've become so effeminate, right? Because uh, we're, we're afraid of being accused of stuff. Here, Paul is telling Titus, he says, I want you to go and shut them up and rebuke them sharply. That's not a stretch to say mouths must be stopped me equals shut up, right? Is that, is, that, is that okay? <laughs> that's basically what he's saying. That's what it says in the Greek. It says, shut up. Uh, his mouths must be stopped. What does that mean? Halted. Uh, you know, and, and by the way, there's several ways we can do this. We can do it with what he had said. Rebuke them sharply. Why? They can be sound in faith. Hey, if they repent and they get corrected, I think about Apollos. Remember Apollos in the book of Acts? He was a very eloquent preacher, but he lacked a few things. I personally think one of the things that he lacked was this gospel of grace. I think he was still teaching, uh, without going into it, kingdom theology. He was teaching a very Jewish message. And, uh, and, and by now, it was time to start, uh, you know, hey, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, this is the gospel of grace. And so Aquila and Priscilla, who were disciples of Paul, um, uh, pulled him aside and lovingly said, look, you're a great preacher. You've got some good Bible knowledge and understanding, but, but let's, uh, let me show you uh, a little further. Let me show you a little bit more. And, uh, and he received it and became a very mighty influence in the first century. Uh, he was one of the great influences of the church of Corinth. All right. and, uh, and he received a well. And by the way, every one of us, uh, none of us should be above uh, um, correction. You see, I, even as the pastor, I have people sit down with me and we've kind of hacked through some doctrines. And there's, there have been times when I, when I said, nope, you're wrong, see? And there's been other times when I said, you know what? I think I had a misunderstanding on this. And, and, um, uh, but, but any one of us can fall into things. These guys are actually going out there. And it even says they're, they're, uh, um, uh, they, they do this for their own profit, uh, uh, for the love of, uh, of lucre, filthy lucre, love of money, and, or, uh, or you know, some kind of benefit to themselves. It wasn't for the love of people, and it wasn't for the love of God. It was love of self. But these false teachers, they're affecting those churches in Crete. And uh, he said those mouths must be stopped. They were, they were teaching these people, these believers there in Crete, and it said especially they have the circumcision. These were especially these Jewish preachers, and, uh, and, mu- and much of what they're trying to bring about, you had on one side, you had those that were very... Uh, took grace too far to this side. But then you had others that basically became legalists and uh, were pushing, uh, uh, they were the Judaizers, and they were trying to bring people back under the Mosaic law, back into those traditions, and that's largely what he's addressing here, similar to who Paul was addressing or warning about in the book of Galatians. Um, and he says, brother, you've been called into liberty. Uh, you're free from the bondage of the law. Uh, he, says, he says, how have you, oh foolish Galatians, how have you, you know, you've started in the spirit. How are you now made perfect in the flesh? This doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, no, no. Well, God who started in the, in the spirit is going to finish in the spirit. You start by faith, you finish by faith. Uh, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, uh, so what they were doing is they were saying, yeah, you know, it's great. We trust Jesus. Uh, yeah, he died for our sins. But, you know, to kind of maintain that, to kind of keep right, to keep holy, we have to go back to doing these things. That's legalism. Okay. And, uh, and so if we're not careful, these, uh, uh, we'll, we fall into it, by the way. Good Baptist churches fall into it. We can look at some of the cults and say, well, that's exactly what they do. But good churches fall into this stuff. And, uh, and so, so it's a very, very relevant book when we address these things. But let's look at verse 14 again. This is from what we touched on last week. How am I already windy? I am just out of shape. Uh, verse number 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Now, this is really interesting not giving heed to Jewish fables. So there were certain stories, and there were certain commandments that they were teaching, and here's the conclusion. Here's what happens. 
It actually was turning people from the faith. That's where it gets really dangerous. Because you can look at that on the, on the, you know, again, to even take in our own current situation on things and say, well, you know, they're just trying to keep their Jewish rituals or Jewish, uh, their rich culture alive. You know, this is something that missionaries struggle with. When they go to a, a foreign field, it's very difficult to try to, you know, we don't want to Americanize other cultures. But it, here's the difficulty. Trying to decipher and distinguish between what is pagan in their culture and what is just cultural. Because there are certain traditions and there are certain uh, uh, fables and those kinds of things. What are they going to do? They're actually at odds with the gospel. And they're at odds with the truth of the word of God. And so what were these guys doing? They were bringing in their Jewish traditions and their fables. Whatever those were, we don't know, and it doesn't matter. Because this is so relevant to any culture. But this is what was happening in this culture. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they were saying, look, watch out for these guys. It's going to deter them. It's going to cause them to go this way or to go that way with their faith. So that, those are the people we're talking about. So then Paul says, this is almost a by-the-way statement. So he says, these are the people. What are they doing? Uh, specifically, they are, uh, uh, they're bringing about these Jewish fables. So he says, don't give heed to them. They, they should be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables. Commandments of men that turn them from the truth. After all, unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But their hearts, uh, but, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. And so as we begin this, we want to see kind of the priority that's placed on purity. By the way, God does not start out saying pure, impurity is important. That is like a self-evident fact. When you know the scriptures, when you know uh, uh, Christ as your Savior, you understand that this is something we don't, we don't have to debate. Hey, is purity important? What we tend to debate about is what is pure. We're not debating is purity important. We're saying, well, what is purity? You see? And so he just starts off. There are two sides of this thing. There is pure, and then there are the defiled. And so, you know, Titus uh, 1.15 here, it's one of those verses that sometimes ignorant or worldly uh, Christians, they try to use to defend ungodly practices. Well, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. I can engage in this because, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything's good. Everything's fine. I, I shared with you, uh, my, my children, you know, certain, certain movies and stuff, you know, we, do, we just never really let them watch and whatnot. And we were serving at a church where the pastor let his kids watch a certain movie that the underlying, uh, I, I want to be careful because I know there are people in our church that watch this, but the underlying thing in there, it is a pagan religion. And, you know, and there's a dark side and there's a good side and there's, anyways, and they said, uh, well, you know, our, our, uh, uh, it's okay as long as we know that's wrong. Now, that was from the mouth of the pastor's kid, five years old or however old it was, you know. And, uh, um, and, and I'm thinking, is that how he unpacked that to you? Well, as long as I know it's bad, it's okay. And we almost have this idea that, that as long as I know it's bad, I'll go into this thing. And, you know, maybe I can have my guard up. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Uh, and it's like, do you hear what you're saying? I mean, I mean, that's, that's some of that stuff is even what Paul was worrying about in, in Corinth. You know, is there, uh, uh, any of these guys were, were kind of still going into these temples, these pagan places, and, and uh, well, I'm not actually practicing in it. Well, what are you even doing there? You see? And, and so we'll say, well, you know, to the pure, if you have a problem with it, it must mean you're defiled. There's nothing wrong with a Christian engaging in a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and, and, uh, and without getting too specific, we can all go through examples and talk about things we've heard people say, you know, try to justify they're, quote, Christian liberties. And, uh, and so that's not what it's talking about. You know, um, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. Is, uh, uh, it's used to excuse all sorts of sin. Um, <clears throat> uh, one commentator on this passage, he was talking about, uh, he said, I, I uh, recall warning a teenager about this kind of, of, um, 
of literature that he was reading, and his defense was, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Your heart must be filthy if you see sin in what I'm reading. After all, to the pure, all things are pure. Well, as we look at this, Paul was refuting false teaching of these legalists. Uh, That's really what they were, with, with reference to foods in particular. And, uh, and, you know, today, I don't think much of the debate really is about food, but, but there's a lot of things that translate. There's a lot of things we can put into that. And they're teaching the Jewish dietary laws, applied, and they're applying them to Christian believers. Um, you know, if you ate forbidden food, you defiled yourself, but if you refuse that food, you're more holy. You're more separated. You're more godly and those kinds of things. And, uh, and so the context really is talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, to the pure. As soon as they start thinking about pure, they start thinking about purification. They start thinking about the Mosaic law and some of those things regarding food and uh, the laws of Moses. Look, uh, look back a couple pages, 1 Timothy 4. Of course, Timothy was dealing with the same stuff. These guys were contemporaries, both students of Paul. Timothy's there in, uh, in Ephesus. Paul's, uh, Titus is there in Crete. Look at 1 Timothy 4. And uh, verse number 3. In fact, let's start with verse number 2, because this is going to come up later. Verse number 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisies, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Get that now to it. And which believe and know the truth. Verse number 4. For every creature of God is good. To that we can say amen. Talk about eating them, right? Every creature of God is good. And, uh, and, uh, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So, so here he's saying that there are these people that are leading people astray. And, and let's look at the context. Let's look at verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And a part of this, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, are forbidding to marry and refusing to eat meat and, and so forth. Um, now, for a long time I've looked at that as, well, these are just really strong legalists and things. And, uh, and I think that is a very true application. I think it's a very true understanding of that passage. But think about in recent days. Think about where our society is going with the view of marriage. Did you know divorce is higher in the church right now than it is in the world? But it's not for reasons you might think. It's because the world stopped marrying. There's living together now. Right? And now we're changing the definition, and we keep cheapening and cheapening and cheapening this, this holy institution that God ordained. And, uh, and, uh, and before long, you know, well, now it's just maybe it's about taxes, or it's about this, or it's about that, or it's about benefits, it's about, you know, whatever. And we're so diminishing, and before long, it's going to say, you know what, uh, we're just going to get rid of marriage altogether. How about this? What are, what are they doing in America regarding meat? They're trying to create artificial meat. It's evil to eat meat. Uh, they're destroying the local farmers. Not to be a conspiracy theorist, but uh, if you're not seeing that, your eyes are closed. Because <laughs> these theories aren't theories anymore, I'm just saying. Uh, but, but think about what is happening now, even in this day and age we live in. Talk about seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They're, they're doing this on a political level. But these religious people, think about this. Is there a religion out there that forbids certain people in their faith to not marry? Or forbids them to marry? Absolutely. And what's really interesting about Catholic priests who are supposed to be celibate, it is amazing the, the problem that has created with sexual morality. With, you know, here, here's something that you think, oh, it's such a pure place. And yet there's report after report after report going back centuries of just, just problems with this stuff. Um, not, not, it's not to say that it's not everywhere. The Bible talks about the, the, the works of the flesh are those things. But it's amazing what an unnatural thing it is to say God made them male and female and, and uh, the two will be one flesh and so forth. Now, is it God's will that everybody marries? No, but that is the norm. You see, that's not the exception. 
That's the rule. And, uh, and so, um, so when you start putting that on somebody as though you are more holy, or in order to be more holy, you must be celibate or these kinds of things, uh, these, are, these are doctrines of devils. And, uh, and, and it's putting them on people, the same thing with the meats and, and so forth. But this is just, uh, uh, Paul has given uh, some Timothy, Timothy some instruction of these people that might go against it, these Judaizers or those legalists. Uh, we'll go back to Titus. We'll spend most of our time there. And so while they were teaching the, um, the Jewish dietary laws, they, they were teaching them in a, in a way that they would apply to these new Gentile believers. And so they say, you know, if you forbid these things, if you refuse to get married, uh, then you must be really holy. You must be exceptionally holy. You know, I'm married to Jesus. Uh, and and uh, this is kind of the way they're thinking. And, um, and, and by the way, this is something we, we fall into this trap too. God calls us to be holy. God calls us to live separate lives. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But here's the danger we fall into. The devil's so good at just, just luring us into self-righteousness, into becoming Pharisees. We start thinking, because I'm separated, I am more holy. Because I'm separated, I am more accepted by God. And, and, you know, the reality is this. And we may say amen to what I'm about to say, but do we really believe this? There is nothing you can do as a blood-washed believer that will make you any more accepted by God. And there is nothing you can do to cause them to push you away. It is amazing the way we unpack things. And we so distort the gospel of grace. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stay on point tonight. But these teachers that are they're teaching, they're promoting these things, here's the reality. They had defiled minds. They had defiled consciences. Uh, so when they looked at like, th- innocent things like food, they saw it as sin. And he says, well, none of this is, is bad by itself. It's not filthy in itself. But when they saw it, oh, sin, this is bad. And so they start promoting it and sharing it with people. But the, it was really, uh, what's interesting is the opposite was actually true, that it was to be accepted. See, it's not the food that was defiling the teachers. It was the teachers that were defiling the food promoting it as evil or promoting it as wicked or bad or, or you know, you're not right with God if you fall into this. And this became a point of division and contention, and, uh, and it really it had to be stopped in these churches. Uh, this was this way it was going on in, in Corinth. This was going on in Rome. This was going on with Timothy there in Ephesus. And so we see here, first of all, the implied command of purity. Purity is something that God upholds, and purity is something that God desires. While, while meat became the issue... They were really missing the other things. Uh, they, they were missing some other things. They're, they're kind of putting all the focus here on meat. And, uh, you know, the, and God still desires for his church to be holy, for believers to come out from among them and be separate and to be holy. Look at, uh, look at 2 Corinthians 6 real quick. 2 Corinthians 6. Rather than read this, I want you to, to see this. We could, we could spend all night on this passage uh, several nights because it is so applicable, and I think too often Christians just kind of ignore this, this, this little portion. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse number 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. By the way, we always will just use that with, with dating. You know, ah, oh, you shouldn't date a non-believer or marriage. You shouldn't marry a non-believer. Well, that is true. I want you to see this. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What is a yoke? Uh, the picture there is a, is a great picture. It's the idea of a yoke of oxen. And they're tied together by that yoke, two oxen. And uh, when you're unequally yoked, you can't plow a straight line. One, one ox is stronger than the other ox. And what's going to happen? You'll go in a circle. You'll you go off, right? Jesus talked about, you know, putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. The idea is, uh, you know, uh, I, I just have a little bit of experience with this when I've uh, plowed parking lots. But it's amazing when you have your eye on a spot where you're going 
and you focus on that spot, your, your lane is nice and straight. But if you look back, even for a minute, then kind of continue, you're going to look back after that row and you, what happened there? <laughs> and the, plow, the person plowing a field, the idea is this, you know, you're plowing a field, you want to pick a, a point to focus on. So you got all these, uh, all these fence posts maybe along the edge and you pick that one fence post. Well, if you take your eyes off that fence post, you look back and you think, wait, which one was it? Oh, there it is, that, that fence post. And you go and you looked at the wrong fence post. Guess what? Your row's not straight. And I think some of us, we have our eyes on the Lord, but when we get off just a little bit, we fall into just a little here, a little there. And next thing you know, it's like, whoa, we're, how did we miss the mark? What happened? How did we fall apart? And so here it is, being on an equally yoked together with unbelievers. It's, a, it's, it's you're pulling for a common purpose and a common direction. And let me just say, an unbeliever and a, and a believer or a weaker believer and so forth, when you are yoking up together for something and you're not on the same page, you're not going to go in the same direction. And so he starts unpacking similar thoughts and similar examples throughout these next few verses. Be not unlikely to the other unbelievers. For what fellowship, what fellowship hath, hath righteousness with unrighteousness? A common commitment, a common purpose, a common goal. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Can light and darkness commune? You know, and again, these are all illustrations. We can take it for a very literal thing. Can darkness and light coexist? I try sometimes, right? I try to see, well, maybe I can be just sneaky enough when I flip the light switch on. It'll be just enough time where I have a little bit of dark and a little bit of light. No, the light instantly makes the darkness go away. And the only place where darkness remains when the light is on is a place that is something is blocking the light. They can't come together. There's always going to be something separating them. And so he says, there's nothing. You know, you can't, you can't try to describe this wall right here. Well, you know, that wall is kind of, it's kind of a blackish white. Would you agree? It's kind of a blackish white. That doesn't make any sense. That pole is a little bit whitish black. Would you agree with that? It's kind of a white black. Go, go, go tell the paint person at Lowe's, I would like some, some whitish black paint. They say, I, I, I don't know how to mix that. <laughs> what are you asking of me? Gray? No, 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 whitish black. It's interesting, God is light and him is no darkness at all. What happens when you do mix light and dark? You get what we often call, well, it's kind of a gray area. But if in God being light there is no darkness... You know, it's amazing. I think things are a lot more, you say, we've been pretty dogmatic on a lot of things. I think God's a little bit more black and white on things than we like to admit. We talk about these gray areas. Are there some areas of liberty? Sure, but I think sometimes we take advantage of that liberty. We say, well, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. But look what it says here. It says, um, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What righteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Verse 15. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Concord is an interesting word. It's from the Greek word symphonesis. Is there an English word that sounds like? Symphony. A coming together. Yeah, melodious tones. Uh, uh, music. What music does the devil and Christ have together? It's an interesting verse to share with your CCM friends. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? We don't have a part. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? By the way, how do you think it made God feel? If, uh, if we brought into church idols, like actual idols, like for the purpose of church, I'm not talking about to use it as an illustration and we're going to beat it with a baseball bat or, you know, I'm sure you've all seen crazy things like that. But it's like, you know, you come in and all of a sudden there's these like, these patron saints on the wall. Whoa, what's happening here? I think we'd have a problem with that. I think God would have a problem with that. You know, you come in and right behind me, there's a, there's a statue of Buddha just sitting on the, right here. You say, well, I don't know if God would be okay with this thing. But did you know 
this building right here is not where God resides. This building is not the temple. Look at it, it goes on to say, um, where am I? For ye, verse 16, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was a prophecy given to the Old Testament of Israel. Verse 17, wherefore, because of that truth, because of the fact that God lives inside of you, he says, come out from among them and be separate. Come out from among all that defiles. Come out from all that is unholy. Come out from all that God would not yoke up with and be separate, say the Lord, and I'll receive you. Because it takes it to a whole new level. It's, it's no longer just, well, God wants us to be pure and to be set apart from these things. So I'm not going to watch rated R movies, and I'm not going to listen to ungodly music, and I'm going to, you know, we, we, these, all the things that we like to list, right? It's not, a, you know, well, I'm going to do that so I can be a good Christian. No, no, you don't do that because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and you're dragging him through that trash, and he says, the Bible says, uh, uh, to grieve not the Spirit of God. Talk about grieving. Think about this. You ever, uh, you ever been somewhere with a friend that embarrassed you? <laughs> yes. Nick, you were that friend. No, uh, <laughs> no but you, you bring somebody somewhere, you know, and uh, they're just making a fool of themselves, and you're like, I'm not with them, you know, and, uh, and you're just like embarrassed out of your mind, you know, I, I came out in public with this person, so my wife must feel every time she takes me in public, but exactly, yeah, yeah, she wouldn't have a ride, uh, uh, and, uh, and yeah, think about this now, think about what we drag the Holy Spirit through when we go to certain places, when we participate in certain things, you see, God desires of his people to be holy. To be set apart. So what do he say? Come out from among them. By the way, anybody know what holy means? We have no problem saying, well, God, God's called us to be holy. But as soon as we start talking about separation, we say, oh, you're one of those separatists, aren't you? Anybody know what the word holy means? Set apart. Isn't that the definition of separate, separation? Being set apart. Okay? So he's called us to be set apart. Come apart from them. Wherefore, come out, verse 17, from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So, it's not a debate on whether or not God wants us to be separate, or wants us to be holy, or to be pure. But now we're trying to get down to what does that mean, and what does that look like? Unto the pure, all things are pure. 1 John 3, 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. The hope of seeing him again, the hope that Jesus is returning. If you believe that Jesus is coming again, you ought, it ought to change the way you live. I'm going to purify myself. I'm going to purge myself because I know he is coming. My wife, uh, this year, we wanted to have the Christmas party at our house, and she decided I'm going to have it on the first weekend of December. Now, it looked like it was to just to get it out of the way because there's so many activities. We didn't want to overlap with anything. But here's the real motive. She knew that if she had a deadline at the very beginning, we would have all the decorations up. We'd have the house clean for the holidays. We'd have everything ready. Because when you have guests over, when you have, when you have planned guests over, now when you just call somebody up in the middle of the, the, the afternoon and say, hey, I need you to come in and install a washer and dryer for me. See, Ryan got to see all of our mess. But when you're planning on having company, what do you do? You clean up. You purify. You purge. You get things ready. The Bible talks about being prepared for his coming, being ready. That day should not overtake you as a thief. And if ever, everyone that has this hope in us should purify themselves. See, the commandment of purity is there, but not in the way of following Jewish fables, not in the way of, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, what we might call today legalism. Well, I'm purifying myself and not touching that meat. That's not what he's talking about. 
it, it, we, we are called to be separate. We are called to come out. But, you know, and there, are, there are commandments here today. God is calling us to be, uh, to be physically pure. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lust. But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace uh, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's interesting there, it says to, to run away from, from youthful or immature lusts, the, the fleshly lusts that are natural to us, but follow or chase after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with who? With them that call on the Lord. Did you know walking with other believers or going in the same direction as you is going to help you better go in that direction? It's going to help you better walk with God. So, so you know, that's one of the, the reasons I, I, want to, I want to have an active... Um, a men's group where we sit around and, and we'll have, you know, we'll have breakfast and we'll talk, but, but, but to, to, to encourage each other to be men of God, to, be, to, to challenge one another and to provoke one another to love and to good works, it's helpful. You know, I've, I've had so many people come to me and say, you know, um, you wouldn't understand this, Pastor, but I've really been struggling with my thought life. I say, welcome to the club. Let's go sit down with these other men because we're all struggling. And we're all needing God's help to give victory. What? You're all, you're all struck. Yes, the devil has confused you to think that you're the only one that has this problem. You see? And so we come together. So with them, they call in the name of the Lord. And what are we doing with the pure heart? Because we're chasing after faith, charity, peace, and righteousness. You see, God has not saved us to just uh, you know, sit, sulk, and sour. He, he, he wants us to become something for Him. He wants us to go in His direction. He wants to use us for His glory. And a part of that is He is purging us. He is sanctifying us. He's, he's, he's putting us uh, uh, in place for His purposes, for uh, use. He's called us to physical purity, to spiritual purity. That we would live lives uh, free from spiritual corruption, from guilt, from bondage. Um, in Galatians, Paul says, Brethren, you've not been born unto bondage. Uh, I'm trying to think of the verse now. Wow. Somebody help me. Uh, but but, but he's, he's, he's contrasting this thing of bondage as it relates to the legalism that the Judaizers were bringing about unto the liberty that is in Christ. And what's happening is they're being captured by their mind that if I'm going to be a good Christian, I must be circumcised. If I'm going to be a good Christian, I must worship on the Sabbath. If I'm going to be a good Christian, I can't eat certain meats. This whole list of things are put together. And he says, guys, you're falling right back into the bondage that Christ freed you from. By the way, it's interesting about that is that bondage were things we would see as good religious practices. But that's what they were holding on to, and that was becoming a God rather than Jesus Christ himself. You see, we can love... How many of you are familiar with uh, uh, typology when you look at uh, Scripture? Typology, that phrase. So typology are pictures, illustrations, that you might take something from the Old Testament to illustrate something maybe in the New Testament or to illustrate Christ. Uh, one such type in Scriptures is uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, talks about uh, uh, the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness and they spoke to the rock. And he said that rock was Jesus. It was a type. But the type will always fall short of the anti-type, which is what it's pointing to. Hebrews talks about the things that were a shadow of things to come. Christ being the fulfillment of those things. Here's the danger. And the children of Israel did this. Remember the serpent lifted up in the wilderness? What was that a picture of? It's such a clear picture of Jesus Christ, right? Whoever looks at it lives. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. And what did the children of Israel start doing with that rod or that, that, that stick with the serpent? They started worshiping it, the thing that was to point them to Christ. This is why I'm, I'm even a little uneasy sometimes having a big cross in the, in the church because sometimes we just so fall in love with an image, an idea, something that should remind us of Christ rather than Christ himself. And so, so, so many of these things were good things, and they completely missed the point of it. That's what Timothy was ta- uh, Paul was talking to Timothy about, about having their conscience seared. We'll get to that in a second. 
But he's calling us to be pure physically, spiritually. He's called us to be pure from doctrinal corruption. See, that, that's, what would, uh, uh, that's that whole come out from among them and be separate. These are doctrinal compromises. Well, we can have a little bit of paganism and a little bit of Christianity. Doctrinal compromise. Ecumenicism. Boy, that's so on the rise. The, the whole evangelical movement is built on ecumenicism. It's all basically the same. We all kind of love the same God. It's just little different ways of expressing it. That's, a, that's a, a fascinating topic and how clever the devil is. You know what that is? The Old Testament, it was called Baalism. Wait, Baal is, I thought that was a worship of a god, Baal. Baal is not a god. Ba- the word Baal means head of. And there was Baal Peor, which meant the head of Peor. That was their deity. There's a, there's a, a, Baal, a, a Baal Chemish, the, the, the god of, of the, those people. And there's all these different ones. And there was even, get this now, Baal Jehovah. Really interesting, because he's just a god of many gods. Tell me, that's not too far off of what we Christianity presents God as today. In fact, I remember uh, a while back, George W. Bush was being interviewed and asked about Muslims' God. Now I know George W. Bush was not a uh, theologian, but he said Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Of course, you know Oprah Winfrey was really big on that. That there's all these different paths that all lead to the same God. And what you think God to be and what you think, you know, what does that do? That says a man is the authority. But folks, you have, it is amazing how common that is and how prevalent it's becoming. We're called to come out from among them and be separate. That we don't give an uncertain sound. We're called to be blameless in our lifestyle. We saw that in the qualification of the, of the elder and the bishop, to be blameless. Uh, 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 nothing would stick to them. No new accusations. You'd be above reproach. Blameless in our lifestyle. We're commanded to be, uh, we, we see the command of purity, but look at the, also, we see the consequence of purity. Matthew 5, 8, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? They shall see God. First Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews, um, Hebrews uh, 12, uh, where it goes through that portion of chastisement, uh, where God, who God loves, he chastens, discourages everyone he calls his son, and so forth. Uh, towards, the, towards the end of the section on chastisement, it, uh, it says, follow after holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. When the heart is pure, the vision is clear. And, uh, and so, so, so here we see this consequences of, of purity as we will see things differently. Look at verse number 15 again. Unto the pure, what? All things are pure. Titus 1.15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. The word here for pure, that is translated as pure, carries the idea of a purging. Something has been purged from them. When someone has a life purged of sin, purged from the world, they begin to see things a little differently. I'll give you an illustration. I grew up uh, not, I grew up in a, in a home where my, my parents were believers, but it's not what you would call like a God-fearing home in the sense that it, it kind of controlled every aspect of our life or, or, or led in every aspect of our life. And I grew up seeing some movies that today I definitely would not let my kids see. But there's some movies in my memory, I don't remember them being that bad. Oh, that was a funny movie. I remember that. I've quoted them around other believers and gone back to be like, I just quoted a Raider on movie. And, uh, and so, so my wife and I, we sit down years later, we're like, oh, let's, let's watch that. Remember that movie that came out when we were teenagers? Let's, let's go watch that movie. We sit down, we're like, oh, this filth, this, this, this absolute, I almost said rubbish. I've never used that word ever. <laughs> this rubbish. It's a good word. Yeah, let's borrow that from the Brits. And, and we turn that thing off. We're like, I don't remember that at all. What's happened? There's been a purging. 
A purging has taken place. I don't see things in the same light. as, and, and we definitely don't see things in the same light as those that are involved in sin. We may look back at times in our life where we might, be, we might use the term backslidden. And the things we start to allow and to entertain in our thoughts and our minds and, and go through is why it's so important to be pure. It impacts the way we see things. That we see the results of, of the, the importance of purity. But notice next the, the, the problem with, with defilement. Here's where we are again in verse number 15. Under the pure, all things are pure. But to them that are defiled... We'll get into the other aspects of that. It gives some definitions, but to them that are defiled is nothing pure. So we see uh, it's self-evident, this importance of purity. And, uh, but, but then there is a problem that when defilement comes in, purity goes out the window. Nothing is pure. It's not just you know, some things. It's, it's all of a sudden we, we cross this line where, where just everywhere you look, it's just unpure, unpure. Nothing is pure. See, Paul is likening those that follow the gospel of grace to purity. These that follow the, the true gospel, these that follow uh, biblical soundness. Uh, remember, he says that they would be sound, uh, was, was the desire to have for these people, they, that they'd be sound in the faith. But then there were those that were preaching a corrupt gospel, legalism, if you would, and uh, they were the ones that were defiled. Now, now, the context is important to really see where he's going with this. So a defiled, this, is a, this leads to a defiled perspective. Nothing is pure for those that are defiled. If you give your life, think about this now, if you're giving your life over to things, and, and, and we never start out with just gross sin. We never just start out with gross immorality and those kind of things, but we start entertaining certain things in our, in, in, that will influence us. So if we're giving our lives to you know, just certain things that, that you know, they seem innocent, and, and I innocently, in, innocently went into it because, after all, I was pure. The next thing you know, I'm dabbling in this thing and that thing. I'm giving my life to Hollywood. I'm giving my life to the entertainment industry. I'm giving my life to these things that, folks, they have the very intention is, to, is defilement. They have an agenda. Now, we're seeing it very clearly today, right? I mean, <laughs> I love it in the recent years, the last couple of years, all of a sudden all these Christians are boycotting Disney. I'm like, welcome to the club. I've been doing it before it was cool. But it's becoming so obvious now, it's like I, I can't deny now that there is an agenda. Now, the agenda I was guarding against was different than the agenda that's become so obvious today, but, but there's an agenda that's happening. There's an agenda in the music. I love it. Remember when the Me Too movement became real, real big and real strong? That was around the same time that, uh, that, uh, that Hillary's campaign to, to beat Trump was, uh, was in full swing. And the people they invited to the Democratic Convention was Jay-Z and Beyonce. That's a real good picture for the Me Too movement. I can't tell you from this pulpit what Jay-Z refers to women as. Me too. We're going to believe women, respect them, all that kind of stuff. And they don't even see a disconnect with this, though. They don't see how defiling it is. I remember one time I pulled up to a, a stop sign, and it was summer day, the, the windows were down, and there was this young lady in a car next to me. And I was actually able to make out the words. And I could not believe how demeaning and filthy, I mean, it was, it was beyond anything. I was like, I cannot believe that was even allowed like, to be like, legally published produced. It was so degrading to women and so disgusting. I, like, I felt sick to my stomach hearing. I felt dirty. I want to go home and take a shower. And so I look over. I'm thinking, you know, well, she's probably with her friends trying to look cool or whatever. This young lady was listening to this all by herself. Like that's what she was choosing to listen to, not to impress a boy or anything like that. That's what she was choosing to listen to. And think about how it's defiling and defiling and defiling. And now she thinks, well, this is norm. This is how women are to behave. It's okay for a woman to sell herself. 
It's okay for a woman to be to be promiscuous. It's okay for uh, to be to be diminished and demoralized, and you know that's just that's just how it is. That's how you're gonna that's how you're gonna show that man that you love him. And that's what's being pumped into these these kids. When you give your life to those things, you find out before long, nothing is sacred. Everything is filthy. The more defiled things become, the more everything becomes defiled. You know, it's so great working with a young, innocent child, little kid. They haven't been exposed to a whole bunch of profanity. They haven't been exposed to, 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 to filth and innuendos. And you tell them about Jesus, and they believe it. By the way, I don't believe anybody's born an atheist. You have to unlearn the knowledge of God written on our hearts. Jesus said, you know, unless you come as one of these little ones. Something so pure about that. But you take that same kid, maybe in a not-so-great environment, by the time they hit middle school, everything is an innuendo. Everything, you can mention inanimate objects, and they're making it all perverted. And, uh, and uh, you know, everything is just, just a mess. All kinds of defilement comes out. Everything has the double meaning. And, and what I'm saying is something has happened. There's been a defilement that has taken place, and all of a sudden nothing is pure, and nothing is off limits. And to them that are defiled, there's nothing pure. Everything turns into a dirty joke. So, you know what I'm talking about. You have military guys here. Uh, maybe your coworkers. You've seen it, right? Everything, everything's a joke. Everything... The word defiled is an interesting word. It means it's been stained with another color. It's been stained, marred with another color. You might say it this way. The person sees through a different paradigm. Everything's marred. Everything's defiled. Look at verse 15 again. Under the pure, all things are pure, but to them which are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They have a defiled conscience. This is what happens when a person lives a double life. See, outwardly he, he commands respect, and outwardly he, you know, he's upright and so forth, but inwardly he's deteriorating. He's breaking down, he's exposing himself to things, and no one can serve two masters. These, uh, these deceivers, these, now keep in mind, these are the ones that are doing deceiving. These deceivers uh, uh, and their love for money cause them to teach false doctrines, to live false lives, and the result would be a defiled conscience. The conscience that no longer convicts them, it's uh, one step closer to a seared conscience that Paul wrote about as we looked at in 1 Timothy. By the way, the Bible talks about conscience in different, different lights. There's a pure conscience. Hebrews talks about an evil conscience. There is a defiled conscience. That's why I'm giving over to these things over and over. And if you give over long enough, it becomes a seared conscience. Anybody ever uh, seared themselves with something hot? Right? I still do that. I still can't seem to put a log on the fire without burning myself. And, uh, <laughs> but it happens when you burn yourself really bad is it leaves a mark. And that mark starts to get kind of hard. And if you keep doing it over and over again, eventually you're not going to have any nerves there. And it's going to be all calloused and built up. And what happens when our, our conscience, you know, what's interesting is that phrase, uh, seared conscience, is in the context of these people that are forbidding to marry, abstaining from meats. You know what these are? These are legalistic ritual, uh, religious things. And, and, and something's been so ingrained into you over and over again, and it's a defiling conscience, and it's, a, it's, it's getting them, and it's getting them, it's getting them before long, it starts to sear their conscience, where now that legalism has to become the framework by which you do your religion because you no longer have the sensitivity of that Holy Spirit. 
You no longer have that connection with a, uh, that a pure conscience would bring, whereas you go to the Word of God and you're communing with Him and you're spending time and the Holy Spirit's ministering to your, to your conscience, but instead it's all just sort of cut off and there's no hunger for the Word. There's no hunger for growth because what, what's happened is you've, you've become so hardened because your conscience got defiled and then it got seared. God's called us to live with a pure, sensitive conscience. So it's much better to, to repent. It's much better to pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I prayed this prayer. Uh, God said to, I believe it was Ezekiel in his day, he said, I will remove from them their heart of stone and will give to them a heart of flesh. And I've prayed on several occasions, Lord, I feel like my heart is getting hardened. I feel like my conscience has been seared. God, would you tear up the fallow ground of my heart? Would you remove this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh again? And, and I think, you think about this, when was the last time you wept over sin? When's the last time you longed for and desired purity and, and God to work in your heart and in your life? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. We see the, the command and the call for purity and what that leads to. We see the defilement of, uh, of, uh, 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 of a defiled conscience. And these guys, notice lastly, we'll look at in verse number 16, we see the proof of the deceiver. Here's, here's, here's what happens and here's where they are going. It says in verse number 16, Here's what they do. They profess that they know God. These are, by the way, these are leaders in these churches. These are teachers. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. These people act religious. They know the lingo. Hey, brother. They, 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 they know Christianese. See, a false teacher is not going to show up to you and say, hey, uh, so you know I'm starting something new, starting this false, this false religious movement. You want to come with me? They don't do that. They're subtle. Like the serpent was more subtle than any other creature in, in the garden. And they, they're smooth talkers. We already saw the, the, the way they talk, and they're smooth talking and, uh, and, and, and what, it, what it does to the, the people. First thing we see is they, they have a false profession. Notice what it says. They profess that they know God. This is obviously, uh, it, it's, it's being an obvious thing. They profess that they know God. It's not a genuine knowledge of God. It's not a genuine knowing Him. It's a profession that they know Him. Uh, turn back a couple pages, 2 Timothy 3.5. Probably just one page back. 2 Timothy 3.5. This is those last days and the perilous times. Notice what it says in uh, verse number 5. Having a form of godliness, a form, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. From such, from these guys, turn away. By the way, how good are we at turning away from, from this stuff? You know what we're very good at? We just want to accept everybody. We want to tolerate everybody. How good are we at turning away from when these show up? But here's what these guys do. Here's what these false teachers do. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And here's one of the marks that you're going to see. Uh, uh, you know, that as soon as they, you take Christianity, they, they, by the way, all the cults say they're Christian. Have you noticed that? Well, we're all Christians. We're Christians like you are. But then they'll add something to it. We're Christians, but we believe in Jesus, but he's not God. We believe in, in grace, but these works. We believe, and then they're always adding something to it. It's a form of godliness. And, and by the way, many times these, these, these false faiths have more commitment to, God, to their, their false teaching than we do to Jesus. You know how early some Muslims get up to pray? Would we do that for God? Would, would, we, would we stop what we're doing three times a day and pray? Five times a day? I almost wonder if that's why it became a habit for Christians to just pray over the meal. So at least we prayed three times during the day. 
I mean, I mean, think about this. These guys are so committed to their false teaching. And we, we, we are so confident we have the truth, yet are we committed to it? Look at verse 6. We're in 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse number 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and let captive silly women, where there is uh, the idea of weak or gullible, uh, laden with sin, led away with diverse lusts. They're, they're, they're preaching something that is desirable to them. Right? Um, they're, they're led away. They're, they've been laden with sin. They're, they're, they're weak in their faith because they've not departed from sin. They're, they're still struggling with some things. And so what they do, they come along and say, you're okay in your sin. You're okay with that lifestyle. When it says they creep into houses, these were where churches were held. Uh, they, they were coming in and, and with their teaching and they say, look, I know pastor was kind of mean today the way he called out your sin. I just want you to know God understands. Why don't you come with me? You'll be okay with this sin. And what are they doing? They're feeding to their lusts, their desires, their sins that they're held captive by. By the way, I talked a little bit about it on uh, Sunday night, but that's kind of the crux of Christian, Christian psychology. It's, it's not a sin. You've got, a, you've got an illness. And if it's an illness, the solution is therapy, not Repentance. So we're going to call it alcoholism. It's a disease. We're going to call it, you know, these, 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 these different disorders and whatnot. Folks, it's sin. We're in this fallen world. We keep, you know, and we keep perpetuating the problem by, by feeding the sin and feeding the lust and so forth. And so, so what are we doing? We're appeasing, appealing to it and we're appeasing it, saying, saying, oh, it's okay, God understands. By the way, I just want to say this. Yeah, God does understand. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He understands, and as your high priest, he wants to take you beyond that. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. When do I need more help than trying to overcome my lust and overcome my sin that has so gripped me? God says, I completely understand. Now let's get beyond it. Whereas these teachers are going to say, oh, God understands, just stay in it. Get comfortable. You're, it's all good. You're good. We're all good. Everyone's good. I remember a preacher friend of mine was, um, was at a conference, and it was break time, and they had like a snack bar there. And he said, hey, brother, you want me to go get you something? And I said, no, I'm good. He says, brother, there is none good. <laughs> okay, it's break time. We don't have to be spiritual about everything, okay? And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but here's these guys, okay? Notice what uh, they profess that they know God. What is it to profess something but, but, but actually believe something else? Hypocrite. Why? Right? They live a, you start to live a false life. That's what begins to happen. Now, let me give you an example. There's a difference between somebody who professes to know God and slips or falls into some sin but genuinely knows God and wants a relationship with Him and those that eventually, the Bible talks about these, uh, these deceivers that will come in, they will be found out. Swift destruction is a word that's used. Who, who, who will eventually turn and never return. So I'll give you an example. Two of them were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and went out and hung himself. Peter denied the Lord three times and repented. You see the difference? It's not to say you're never going to slave. It's not to say you're never going to struggle. Uh, but, but here's the difference. And that's why it says, it says in the, the previous uh, verses, uh, uh, in verse number, um, um, where did it go? 
Oh, in verse number 13, this witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, what, that they may be sound in faith. Hey, there's a chance, there's an opportunity, if they truly love God, uh, to get past this form of godliness and actually learn uh, the, the substance of godliness. Or, when you rebuke them sharply, they're going to turn. They're going to split the church. They're going to have their own followers or do, do whatever it is they're going to do and try to double down on their influence. So we challenge them. But here's what happens. They profess they know God, but in their works, they deny Him. In their works, they deny Him. Folks, so many Christians, myself included, will say I've got this strong conviction. And then in a weak day, in a weak moment, whatever it is, I go against my standard. Now, let me just say this about standards. Standards are not a measurement of your holiness. Standards are a fence you put up so you don't, you don't go over there and defile yourself or others. Sometimes your standard is to help from defiling others. The Bible talks about that, right? Paul said, hey, if meat is going to cause my brother to stumble, I'll not eat meat as long as I live. Talk about a commitment. You know what we do today? <laughs> Who does he think he is? I'm going to go ahead and eat my meat. Paul said, hey, I will not take a paycheck if that's going to cause you to stumble. I will not eat meat if that's going to cause you to stumble. I will do whatever I have to do to limit my liberties so that you can be saved, so that you can grow in your faith. That's 1 Corinthians, um, what is it, 8, 9, 10? Or 7, 8, 9. I know it's three chapters given to that idea. But he really gets at it, and he, he uses all these illustrations of, hey, I've got a right to do these things, but I'm not going to do it if it's going to mess you up. So we have these standards. These standards are not because I'm so holy. These standards are I want to kind of keep things in line. So what did Job say? Um, uh, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How shall I look upon him? David said, I will put no wicked thing before my eye. What are those? Those are standards, so he doesn't fall into that. By the way, David, oops. His standard came down one day, and as we say, the rest is history. But what did David do? He repented. He got things right. It wasn't without consequence. So, so what I'm saying is stand, these things are important, but they can never be the measurement of our holiness. Our church is more holy than, than the church down the street because look how long our lady skirts are. Boy, we're in trouble. We start going down that path. Serious trouble. Their lives were disobedient. They denied him by their works. James 2, 18 and 19, Yea, man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith. Without thy works, I'll show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou do as well. The devils also believe and tremble. You see, that's the world around us. Well, you know, don't, here's what they say. Don't judge me. God knows what? God knows my heart. Yeah, but we all see your works. And by your works, you're denying him. By the way, man looks on what? The outward. And are we not called to influence man? God cares about the outward. I'm, I'm giving away my Sunday night sermon. I'm going to hold that in a couple weeks, and I'm not this Sunday. They reject the truth. Look what it says, being abominable and disobedient and to every good work reprobate. It's interesting, the word that's used, and to every good work reprobate. They built their life on a lie. The word there for reprobate here, it's different than, um, there's other passages that, 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 that translate it different, uh, from a different word. But the word here for reprobate is the word to reject something. And to every good work, in other words, the works have shown that they rejected something. They rejected truth. They rejected the grace of God. So we see from this passage, as, as we close out chapter 1, Paul is challenging Titus. Hey, you've got to shut these guys up. And here's how you're going to do it. Uh, you, you need to emphasize this priority of purity. He didn't command them to be pure. That's a self-evident thing. He, he said, uh, look, when you are pure, you see things from a pure perspective. We were talking about that the other day. Um, 
sometimes you may see somebody who's innocent do something that you're like, eh, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that. There's nothing evil about it. But it may have had a connotation that they were not aware of. Why? Because under the pure, all things are pure. A friend of mine uh, said a euphemism one time. He did not know what the euphemism stood for. And it was profanity. And I told my friend, I know you grew up in a pastor's home. You probably never heard this expression. But trust me, probably don't say that again. <laughs> but under the pure, all things are pure. On the flip side, by the way, I'd rather be there and sometimes make a mistake than the flip side where everything's got a connotation. Teenagers start chuckling, you know, laughing and giggling during a sermon because something was said that has some double meaning somewhere else. The pure, all things are pure. We've got to be ignorant concerning that which is evil. See the priority of purity. We see, we see the, the, the trouble and the problems with, uh, with what happens when we have a defiled conscience. See, if we allow the impure thoughts to become, uh, if we allow our thoughts to become impure, those impure thoughts lead to impure actions. And if we allow those impure actions to carry on, it's going to start turning into impure habits. We start letting those habits uh, uh, unfold. We start having an impure life and destination. Where are we going with this thing? In fact, these influencers that we see here, who were influencing this early church, many of them were probably not even saved. Hey, rebuke them sharply, because if they are saved, they may be sound in the faith. They may repent of this stuff, because I know they got off track because of filthy lucre or whatever. But many of them weren't even saved. They were reprobate concerning every good work. They've rejected truth. They've deceiving many, and they're leading believers astray. Now, this is a very difficult thing. Uh, remember when Paul said to, in Colossians, I'm done, I'll close with this, this illustration. Paul was talking to the Colossian believers, and he said, he says to them, who have beguiled you? Who have bewitched you? It's like you're under this spell. And he said, he said, guys, you've, you, you received the gospel of grace. You started with the gospel of grace, but now you have fallen from grace. That doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they fell away from the true gospel. They're not teaching it anymore. I believe many of them were genuinely saved. But what was happening was, if, if the devil can so convince you to follow and go after this other gospel or to pervert the gospel or to twist the gospel, guess what? None of your converts are going to be legit because you're preaching another gospel. I think it's where some preachers got themselves today. I think there are going to be some people in heaven like Joel Osteen. I think Joel Osteen possibly is saved. But he doesn't preach the gospel. He's got the largest church in the world. And I can just see God seeing him there in heaven. Where are all your people? I trusted you as one of my shepherds. See how dangerous this becomes? These people are probably genuinely saved and born again in these churches. But they're being led astray by these influencers. So God's telling Titus, Titus, you have a tough task ahead. Straighten some things up. Fix it. And then he said, I want you to, I want you to, to put in some people that are going to have some backbone and some courage to shut up some of these people, to call them out, to rebuke them sharply, and to stay on this course. And uh, may, uh, may our church stay that same course as we establish what God's doing here. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you.